because he said, I can't tell if you're sloppy or mischievous. Like here I am a black woman systematically taking down this white male idol. Right. And he says, I can't tell off the tip of his tongue is locked and loaded. It's I can't tell if you're sloppy. Sloppy is a euphemism for black. Mm. Dirty, lazy, sloppy. That's, that's what black people are in our collective consciousness. White in our white collective. Con- and then or mischievous. That's woman. Yeah. I can't tell if you're untrustworthy, if you're a snake, if you're up to no good, if you're easily deceived. Yeah, you and you were bringing up the 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 negative overtones of the phys- figure of Jezebel in our last mm-hmm. uh, interview. Yeah, and it's the Are same. Are you a Jezebel? Like, he, totally. Yeah. And he he's like, I can't tell if you're black or female. Yeah. Jeez. And that's why I'm like, we have to talk about the divine and black femininity because so quickly he saw me as dirty and untrustworthy Mm. because I was saying something that he didn't like Mm. and saying it well. Hey everybody, welcome to No Small Thing, the podcast dedicated to helping you live a less certain and more curious life. I'm Scott. And I am Macy. Welcome S- to sometimes episode I forget. There's some noise in the background, but that's fine. Just ignore it. 86. Uh, yeah. Is Christina Cleveland? Yes. Two? Christina Cleveland 2, I think, is the this right This is episode. our second time yep. that we are producing an episode where we, get, we sat down, well, No Small Thing sat down mm-hmm. and interviewed Christina Cleveland. Yeah, and we should make this quick because I think when people click on an episode like this, they want to get right to the interview. But I do think it'd be awkward if we just dropped you right down into the conversation. So here we are. I probably said this last time, but um, as spiritual folks Mm -hmm. trying to get some spiritual wisdom out there, trying to promote some spiritual wisdom, I'm using intentionally vague, inclusive language here. Christina Cleveland, I I believe, is the exact type of person, exact person, a, a really good person <laughs> <You've got this. laughs> for us to be learning from. I'll just yeah. say, talk for my own self. Like yeah. I'm, I've learned so much and have been so beautifully challenged um, by her writing and her thinking. And um, yeah, it's really crazy when I think back of when I first encountered her work and her writings in college and being like so profoundly moved by her mm-hmm. and people who are writing about similar trains of thought. And it's crazy to think of now being like associated and supporting her work and I what know. she's doing because I feel like she is such a powerful voice mm-hmm. specifically right now. Mm-hmm. And so it's really awesome that like we get to support and just put her voice out there. Yeah, absolutely. It's a good thing. Yeah. I mean, and obviously she doesn't need our help, but no. um, I but mean... Yeah, I don't know. We're, we're associated. I like to think that some in some yeah, on our mood board, small we have way associated. Yeah, it's been really fun that we've built this relationship. I unfortunately couldn't be there for the interview because you're a working person. I work, yeah, during the daytime, <laughs> and that's a bummer. This was the only time we could schedule it. But I mean, we talked for about fifty-five minutes, probably actually probably a little longer. But I hit the record button, and then we had about that amount of time. And in my in the back of my mind, I'm so 
trained for a no small thing episode. Mm-hmm. So, so I kept thinking, like, Oh, we're just hours. good and going. Yeah. I was like, I had all these questions that we were leading up to. Mm-hmm. And then she was just like, I got to go. And I was like, Oh, oh. dang it. So <laughs> you might feel that way too. But although there's just so much good stuff packed into one small interview. So, um, yeah, it's really good. I hope, I hope you guys not only enjoy this interview and learn a lot from this, just this one interview, but just follow Christina's work, support her on Patreon, follow I know. her on Instagram. Go check her out on Instagram. I mean, yeah. I today was looking at her Instagram page cause it is in a lot of ways our, an inspiration to our own. Page. I know. I know we've like copied we've her like a little stolen some <laughs> formatting ideas. Um, but even just her stories, like I was looking at her black female mm-hmm. divine mm-hmm. like stories and there's so much there and I feel like Christina is a powerful voice as well as a curator and supporter of powerful other voices mm-hmm. and she has such a sense for art and aesthetics and brings that forward alongside her intellect and it's just like this powerhouse so she practices what she preaches yeah like she totally. acknowledges her own privilege and 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 continues to also learn from other more marginalized people. Yeah. And um, I think also what I would say about Christina and others like her um, for folks like me, I think one of the things I've learned is that there are certain things I think we were, we are all ultimately incapable of figuring out with our brains in a room by ourselves. Mm. Like I need to be exposed to the yeah. things that even just in a, just Christina's Instagram exposes me to Mm -hmm. like the quotes, the thoughts, the ideas, but the images too of her continually posting, um, uh, different versions of black women with the word divine over it is training my brain Mm -hmm. in a new way. So it's, again, it's not like, can I sit in a room and picture God as a black woman? It's not that it's, I need to see it over and over again and hear about it. And as like a, a counter force to the primary mm-hmm. images that you've had shoved on you of what divinity is and God looks like. Yes. It needs to be more normalized. Yeah. But even the other day she posted a thing that said divine on, I think that had like different pictures of, uh, different like sizes of abdomens and stomachs. Hmm. It's like some big, some small, some skinny, some, you know, all sorts of different, it was just sketches. And she said divine. And I love that. Like, just the 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 standard picture photoshop picture that you see on a magazine is like that's the only imagining or imagine the only thing we can imagine is divine yeah and yeah just scrolling through her feet it's like super helpful so but she's also a great writer and has a great story and she is really starting on her journey right yeah. now as like a, a a true modern day prophet i think I, th- I agree. I feel like she is someone who we are both incredibly inspired by. Mm-hmm. So I hope that, if anything, that this interview can be inspiring to y'all and that it's no small thing in your lives. Mm-hmm. And you can approach it curiously. There it is. There it is. Hope you enjoyed, everybody. We'll be back next week with an episode on play. We are so excited for this yes. episode. We're starting research right now. Okay. Isn't that interesting? Play? What do you, I'm not even going to explain what we mean by that. Just I have be thoughts in, in interested. my head right now. All right. Okay. Enjoy this interview. Okay, Christina, 
We are here. Um, it has been a year, almost a, literally a year since we talked to you last. We. Now it's just me. No Macy today. Um, how are you? <laughs> We're going to pretend we just started talking. <laughs> great. I am great, actually. I, we just moved into our home. We were um, bouncing around. We were in seven different Airbnbs throughout the fall, um, waiting for our house to be ready for us to move into. That's kind of and exciting. <laughs> so it's not, yeah, we've been here for about two weeks, so okay. I'm pretty happy just to be in a permanent home. You didn't have internet for a few weeks. We didn't have a lot of things for a few weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we had a, we had roofs over our heads, and so I'm grateful for that because I live in Oakland now, where there is quite a bit of, of it. There is a gentrification. Oh yeah. Problem slash crisis, and it is moving lots of people into the streets. And so you really can't, I mean, we have homeless people living on my block because mm. that's the reality in most parts of Oakland. So, you know, it's been interesting to have, to have seven, I think we had 17 or 19 weeks of um, waiting for our house to be ready, which we didn't plan for and we're not told was going to be the case. So it was a little bit chaotic. Um, but also it's like, no matter where our Airbnb was or hotel, you could walk outside and be mm. like, I actually have a roof over my head. Like, there are thousands of people who look like me, have dark skin, mm. don't in yeah. this community, you know, so. And yeah. why did you choose Oakland? Is that just? My spouse got a job here. Okay. And so I had, I was living in North Carolina when we talked last um, and I had a job at Duke. And since I no longer have a job at Duke and I'm self-employed, it didn't matter where I live. And my spouse got a great job here. And so we moved. Do you like it so far? I love it. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay area. I grew up oh. like 30 minutes from here. So, okay. so it's pretty familiar. Uh, it feels like coming home. Yeah. You know, I went away to school when I was 15. I went to boarding school in New Hampshire. And so it's been, you know, I'm 39 now. So it's been a long time since I've lived here because I went away to school and then never came home for any like permanent in any permanent way. And so it's changed, but it still feels like home in some ways. And like, I grew up watching Cal basketball, Cal football. Like we, we got to go to all the games in the fall. Mm. And so some of those things were just really neat. Yeah. And it was totally weird because we had season tickets to Cal football and neither me or my husband went there. And so like, we would talk to people and they'd be like, so are you alums? And we're like, no. And they're like, are you students? We're like, no, we're like literally those weird who are just here. (laughs) (laughs) That's so good. We have no, we went to their bowl game. Like we did all the things. We have no real connection to the school. (laughs) I think that's how a lot of people are with UW sports around here. People just like UW. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. It was just, we were kind of laughing at ourselves and we're like, (laughs) we're the creepy adults that are just here. (laughs) And you have your kid who goes here. Do you like, I'm like, no, like, no, no, no. (laughs) (laughs) That's so good. And you have your little attic office here. We're both in attics, yeah. I think. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, our house has um, a, had a third floor attic space that's like 650 square feet with a half bath. And nice. so we at my work and like my workspace, my sanctuary. Yeah. I'm an introvert and I was living alone in the woods in North Carolina for the mm-hmm. last four years. And so in addition to moving to Oakland, I also moved in with my spouse. We've been living apart. And so. Oh, just That's to nice to be back together. Space. Yeah. Well, yeah. we've never been together, actually. Oh, Just so sad. <laughs> That's hard. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. I'll just start by saying something. Um, 
I, I remember I, when I started my seminary classes at Fuller, I had this professor, Brian Burton. He was a great professor. Um, and he taught my systematic theology classes. So I think I took three classes with him. And it was one of my first classes. And this was probably like, oh, did you hear that ding? I got to turn that off. I got to turn off my notifications. Um, do not disturb. Okay. Um, I was probably 26. And so all the seminary stuff was very exciting for me. I was, uh, and, and I had never heard this name, but he started talking about N.T. Wright. And he was saying, you know, us in the Protestant tradition, or at least Presbyterians and stuff, we don't have a bishop, we don't have a pope, but I think we should casually refer to or think of N.T. Wright as our pope or our bishop. <laughs> and uh, I was like, ooh, that's kind of a good, fun thought. And I think for the longest time, I felt really cool that N.T. Wright was sort of this more progressive voice in my life compared to people like John Piper or something like that, who I liked mm-hmm. when I was studying theology at SPU. Um, but I think... I think now at this stage in my life, I would much prefer to think of people like you or, uh, or thinkers or writers, um, as my Bishop, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so the people that I'm choosing to learn from and listen from and submit to, so to speak. And it's it, for me too, it's, um, I'm, I'm sort of like, I don't know if done, but like I, I've, I've, I've learned and studied because I think we both have this in common. It's like my grandpa was a pastor. My dad's a pastor. Mm-hmm. Um, I've just been steeped in white theology my whole life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and then um, thinking about all the people you promote on your Instagram in particular, just mm-hmm. the wide range of diversity. I'm just like, mm-hmm. this is the space that I need to be in, in terms of what I'm going to be learning and feeding myself. Mm-hmm. And it's been so helpful. Mm-hmm. So thank you uh, for all the work you're doing. And <laughs> it's been so good. It's been so good. Um, okay. So I, I said my, my question, I don't know if this is a good place to start, but I mean, this happened shortly after our last conversation, you came out with this, I think it was a Patreon post, Mm -hmm. uh, about this blog you'd written called white devil in blue. Mm -hmm. Um, would you, so, so since, since we last talked, uh, you phased out of your job at Duke and I remember blazed out of my job. Blazed. (laughs) (laughs) That's a better way to say it. (laughs) <laughs> um, and I remember last year in our, our interview, you said you had often felt like you had your wings clipped while you were mm-hmm. working there. Do you want to just maybe kind of like riff on that blog post a little bit and what it's been like since? Sure. Yeah. So white devil and blue is an essay that I wrote. Um, actually I wrote it as, um, as a contribution to an anthology that's coming out this fall. Mm. Um, this coming fall, so fall 2020, um, it's a collection of actually just like incredibly prolific writers of color who are writing about the South and their experiences in the South. I was actually honored to even be included in it. Um, yeah, just honored. So I wrote um, I wrote the essay as part of that process about a year ago. Um, and while well, working with the editor, um, I came to the conclusion, this is my truth about Duke. So when I leave Duke and I had been planning on leaving Duke, I was like, I'd like to publish this. And so they, I got permission from the anthology editors um, and publishers to um, share it a year before the book's mm, actually mm. going to come out. Cool. Um, yeah. Which is, I'm, I'm grateful that they supported my, my sort of urging to speak my truth. Yeah. Yeah. From the anthology, you know, um, so I, you know, I 
was reflecting on my experience at Duke and they specifically asked me to write about religion in the South. Um, that's one of the reasons why I was even invited. Um, and, you know, I had, I had made the connection between Duke and um, plant, the plantation of the South. Mm -hmm. um, it's not like you can't be in Durham for very long and talk to actual black people and not refer not hear duke referred to as the plantation wow people so you know if there are white people who say what duke's not a plantation they clearly are not talking to like black leaders mm. in durham because you hear it in pulpits in black churches you hear it in conversations in coffee shops wow in, um act, act you know meetings amongst activists like it's if you haven't heard that and you're in Durham, it says everything about your lack of proximity to black people. <laughs> um, and so, and then, you know, Duke was funded by income from slave that, that from slavery. Right, so it's right. not, I don't think Duke, you know, it's not like Duke, not like they sold a bunch of enslaved people and that's what paid for Duke, but tobacco money paid for Duke. Right. Right. <laughs> which yeah. not have existed without enslaved labor. Hmm. So, um, and they haven't Just, really found a way to address that. Oh, there's yeah. been zero yeah. way to, of addressing it. I mean, um, I don't know much about the, this, but some it, of the buildings on campus are named after donors who are known slave owners, hmm. proud slave owners. Um, I, I mentioned in another piece that I wrote. I mean, one of the buildings is named after Julian Carr who publicly boasted of horse whipping black women. Like, and that's his quote. Mm. <laughs> and this is in public records. He was actually defending a statue of um, some racist person and mm. why the statue needed to be like in this public square. And that's, so, I mean, in that it's car, car hall is one of the major buildings mm. on campus. Um, he funded it and he was Methodist and Duke is Methodist. Right. And so, there are all these layers of like the broader picture of Duke never really grappling with and having any sort of repair around its history. There's the layer of it being a Methodist school and the Methodist church not really grappling with its history and complicit um, actions in slavery and in the Confederacy. And then there's the layer of Duke's relationship to historically black colleges and universities and how Duke has all this money and there are all these other historically black universities, many of them Methodists, who every single year you get emails saying, we might not be in, like we might not exist next year if someone doesn't give us a million dollars, you know, um, like today. Yeah. And Duke um, just has all that money. <laughs> Duke has bajillions yeah. of dollars. Yeah. And they're all like within a stone's throw of campus, hmm. you know? So it's just like, but then also there was this personal layer of my experience there as a black female faculty member in the divinity school. So I think that essay just weaves in, which I mean, I'm a social psychologist and a theologian. And so it makes sense that I'm talking about my personal experience, but also in this broader, yeah, just very sick system. Yeah. And, you know, the feedback I got from that essay, which made some waves, particularly in the black academic world, um, was just like, yep. Yeah, we know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, and I wrote it because I wanted to, I knew I was leaving. Um, I knew I didn't need Duke. I think a lot of Black women 
have the exact same experience that I have, not just at Southern schools, not just at, just at religious schools, but really everywhere. You know, it wasn't unlike the experience I had at Westmont College mm. 10 years ago. Mm. You know, I, mean, I think it was more ghastly because this in the South, there's a lot more that's just above ground when it comes to anti-Blackness. But I mean, my experience at Westmont College was 99.9% negative mm. <laughs> as a Black woman, mm. you know? <laughs> And so all across the academic world and all across the corporate world, you know, all across the institutional religious world, people were like, yeah, like everything you're saying resonates. It affirms my experience. I just knew that very few Black people, specifically Black women, would have a platform like I do because I don't, I was, I was leaving Duke and I don't need another academic job. And I knew like once I write an essay like this, like this is the kind of essay that Black women get public, get punished for, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like you don't work again mm-hmm. in that industry <laughs> after you actually say this is what it was, you know, which is what I did. Um, and I, so I was just like, well, I won't, I've been in academia for 11 years. Um, I'm done. I mean, I don't need to be in academia anymore. I can find other ways to scratch my teaching itch, mm-hmm. Patreon being one of them, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and that's really the only thing I like about academia is the students, some students. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You don't <laughs> like so big, huge classrooms like, filled with lots of people? <laughs> did I? No, yes, I was thinking as an introvert, oh. just like... Yeah. Look at all oh, the no, people I'm surrounded by. Because yeah. it's, it's not intimate. Yeah. I, yeah. I totally it's relate to so that. Yeah. Like, I can put me on stage. That's fine. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, no, I just, I so I knew I can write this. Mm-hmm. I actually have the freedom to write this. Mm. Um, and so I wrote it for all the people who can't say it. So for maybe any the casual listener who hasn't read your blog post, like, uh, can you sum up the gist of like, you know, sort of, I mean, even that small little story you tell about, I think being at a game and somebody coming up and telling you. Yeah, I was you, at a Duke basketball yeah, game. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was at a Duke basketball game. It was the, I was brand new at Duke Divinity School. Um, my position, I was the, I was a faculty member and also the director of the Center for Reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And so my position involved some fundraising. And so the school's donor relations office had connected me with this alum and said, this is someone who's interested in giving money quite a bit to you all. Um, Take him to a game. We have tickets for this sort of schmoozing Mm -hmm, essentially, mm -hmm. right? Take him to a game, hang out, blah, blah, blah. So I took this person to a game and it was, um, it was an early season game. And so they were playing like a non, you know, they weren't, it was like an exhibition game. And so they were playing this little teeny tiny school, Livingston college um, I think they have 700 students. It's an historically black college. It's also Methodist, just like Duke. Um, but just if you talk about the haves and the have nots, like this, David and Goliath, like whatever the metaphor, this is what we <laughs> had there. And Duke, I just remember being at the game and I'm a huge college basketball fan, grew up watching Pac-12 sports back then it was Pac-10 um and so I you know I I understand the way that and I played you know and so it's like I understand so you know Duke comes out they're the they're the reigning national champions they come out in a full court press just aggressive Mm -hmm. right and of course poor little Livingston College is just flustered from the beginning and they like you know right away just you know throw away the ball um and then of course you know within minutes Duke is up double digits to nothing and I just remember thinking gosh this dynamic is like the dynamic of the world Mm. the white 
Methodist Christian privileged institution that has all the power is literally the reigning national champions. And they're coming out just overly aggressive against this under-resourced black Methodist also, but black Methodist, because back when this denomination was founded, they weren't allowed to be part of the white Methodist church. Wow. There's so so much at play. So many layers. Yeah. So many layers going on here. Um, And to just see that, like, the way that Duke played, just crushing them, you know, which I guess, you know, it's sports Mm -hmm. in quotes, right? And so it's like, show no mercy, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) except for what happens when the reason why there is inequality is because Goliath is evil Mm. (laughs) and not just bigger. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Goliath is bigger because Goliath was hoarding resources and systematically oppressing David for centuries under the guise of religion. Yeah. Under the guise of a denomination that was pro Confederacy, pro slavery, um, still has, you know, Robert E. Lee statues on its campus, mm. <laughs> right in the chapel. Jeez. In the chapel. <laughs> and so if you walk into Duke's chapel, they just got rid of the Robert E. Lee statue um, maybe a year or a year or so ago mm. when all a lot of the Confederate statues were coming down. I mean, it was like a, na- like a national trend. But at the yeah, time, which was in 2015, you walk into Duke Chapel and there are all these saints, like life-size um statues of saints and then right next to that one of them is robert e jeez it's like you know like saint john legitimate saints so something's trying to be communicated there yeah right yeah. And so, so i kind of connected that that metaphor of the basketball game and mm. my realization kind of like what i'm sitting in here goes beyond my personal experience with the reality that here was this white alum who saw me cheering for the black team because I couldn't right. help it. And also I'm not a Duke basketball fan. Yeah. Like I grew up even watching Duke. So I don't care, you know, like, and so I just automatically instinctually am like, I'm going to cheer for the black team. I'm going to cheer for the HBCU. I'm going to cheer for the underdog. That's just my personality. <laughs> <laughs> and he was, he whispered to me, I see you cheering for the other team like I wasn't allowed to associate with my blackness with the blackness that was on the and that's when I just was like yeah this is a, this is a plantation and like, it felt I, kind of threatening I, right when he I, said I, that it was totally threatening yeah. I mean it was totally totally creepy um and I realized you know these players these black players down there you know, I understand. I mean, my godfather coached at Cal growing up and now he's one of the, he's the, one of the assistant coaches at KU, Kansas. Mm. Um, and so he's been in the, that world my whole life. And I, you know, understand a lot about the, the politics and the economics of the game. And the fact of the matter is, is a small school like Livingston, they agree to play Duke because that one game is going to pay for the entire athletic department's Mm. budget for the whole year, you know? So it's, you're literally like, selling yourself out because that's the way the system is. Like you can't survive as a Livingston college without agreeing to play the Dukes mm. and get beat up by the Dukes. Like that's, that's just what happens. Mm. And so um, I was kind of like, they're down there on the court. They're little, you know, 19 year old black souls are just taking a beating. 
so that their schools, so that they can be a team, so they can have a season, you yeah. know? Yeah. And then I was just like, and I'm up here in the stands and it's not any different. I'm sitting here being threatened by this guy. I'm sitting here putting up with unjust institutional policies that are anti-Black, bad for my Black students, like anti-me. And I'm like, well, I kind of have, this is the game. Yeah. Yeah. That's the I got to put up with it. Yeah. And it just represents the whole structure, not just that one moment and that one. I like that you're using that as a metaphor. Yeah, because you can't, you know, at Duke Divinity School, you can't really call out Methodism. Yeah. <laughs> you can't really call out the dean. Yeah. You can't really, I mean, you can like say little things in your in your scholarly work that no one's going to read because it's written for an esoteric audience of five people. <laughs> but, you know, you can't actually say this is what it is. Yeah. Um, oh. And then obviously that's how it was starting then and continuing on. Yeah. That was like my second month there. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I had already talked to the Dean about something and um, her response was kind of like, what are you going to do about it? Like, yeah. you don't have any, like you can leave. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. your option, you know? So if you want to, if you want to stay on the plantation the, these are the rules. And I think over my time at Duke, I got set free from the false belief that there isn't abundance out beyond what I can see with my eyes. You know, like I don't have to actually stay in this situation. Right. I don't have to keep playing this game. Um, there, There's a... Well, so glad you didn't keep playing that game. <laughs> um, there's something well, I, I kind of didn't have a choice to be honest, right. because um, maybe a two two years before I actually left, my entire digestive system shut down. Oh yeah, you mentioned that last time. And oh. so when I actually decided to leave Duke, I was bedridden. Oh. And what happened was, so that was like a year and a half before I actually left. But what happened is my doctor got me a six month paid medical leave. Mm. Um, and then after, during that medical leave, um, a dean in another Duke professional school, not the, not the divinity school, who is a supporter of mine, got me a one year paid research leave from the provost. Wow. So, I just, so I, my whole last year and a half I was at Duke, I was just getting paid and I never stepped on foot on campus. Um, my husband would even go to campus to pick up my mail. So I never went there. Um, but I mean, the gravity of my medical situation showed me like my, my life is not digestible. Mm. Like something has to give. And I was just ready to just quit and just be like, I'm out. Like my health is too important. Um, but then my doctor was like, oh, I'm pretty sure I can get you a medical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had a great advocate, you know, cause I wasn't even thinking about that really. I was just thinking I just got to get out. She's like, Hmm. The least they can do is like, she's like, you literally need medical support. And she's like, technically you could probably do like a month long leave, but your faculty, what are you going to do? Come back and start teaching classes three right, weeks in. Right, right. No. Semester. <laughs> so then I got the semester and that turned into another, it turned into 18 months long, <laughs> which <laughs> well, is like the least they can do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but it probably uh, sort of weaned you <laughs> off of that system, but also it seems like it gave you, uh, a really, 
great empathy for people that have gone through trauma. It got you in touch with your own sense of trauma. Yeah. I mean, I think it was a huge step on my own healing journey with regards to trauma. I did a ton of trauma work while I was on that leave. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, I went to diff- four different types of trauma therapy a week mm-hmm. for about five months. Wow. So I mean, that was like, that was a full-time job, yeah. you know, to process and doing all that work. Um, and then also I think it, it gave me time to, um, go on my black Madonna pilgrimage, mm-hmm. which was really nice. That. <laughs> that was a huge catalyst for me. Um, cause I went to France for five weeks and walked 400 miles. And then also, um, it gave me time to like start doing other things that could supplement my, the Duke income that I was going to lose. So I started mm-hmm. a Patreon, for mm-hmm. example, you know, and stuff like that. And so by the time I left Duke, I had been, I had had a Patreon for like six months and I already had patrons and I already had, I mean, by no means my Duke salary, but still it wasn't like I was walking away from Duke being like, and now I have zero money right. coming in, you know? Oh, so. I, you know, and uh, we've been engaging with you on Patreon, but I mean, you could, I, I'm just so intrigued by Instagram because it is sort of a ministry of sorts, you know, it's like, well, not, not <laughs> sorts, but I mean, again, like having said that, stuff about you being my bishop and stuff. Um, <laughs> just the stuff you post on your Instagram, like I'm struck just thinking about this stuff with trauma. Uh, you know, you posted a picture that was like a split cell and one was like from 10 years ago and you like physically shrinking yourself. Mm-hmm. And now 10 years later, stronger and taller and happier. And then mm-hmm. another picture I liked, or you posted a, a picture of you um, going down a zip line and you were like, uh, yeah. joy is resistance. <laughs> You know, um, I, I also, I think another thing that I think we, we, you posted recently that I liked was a, sort of a critique of Leslie Newbegin and you were oh, saying, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you were saying, you know, this is, this was his call, but my call is to resist and to confront or to do different types of things and serve or, um, yeah, yeah. Witness. I gave, I went to Cambridge last summer. So actually it was so interesting. So I quit. I was, I, I quit Duke. Um, it was no one at Duke knew my husband actually went in the night before I resigned and mm. cleared up my office for me. And so, so nice. yeah, I just, um, yeah. It, so it was just all surprise. And then the same day that I quit, it was, you know, late, it was, um, late June. Mm. Um, I ended up going to Chile to celebrate a friend's 40th birthday. Mm. We went to, we saw the eclipse. Cool. And so, yeah, she's an international eclipsophile. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. The only reason I was down there was to celebrate my friend. I'm very beautiful as a one. Um, but it was good to just get out of Dodge yeah. because I was getting tons of calls. And um, I've done so many interviews with like AP, Washington Post, mm-hmm. USA Today, like for, for other topics, like not about me, but just like, oh, we needed a so-called expert or whatever. So they all had my number. So mm-hmm. I had all these reporters calling me, even though like I didn't want to talk to anybody. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was nice to just be like, I'm out. Off the um, grid. Then a week later, I went to England because I had already um, committed to speaking at Cambridge and giving a critique of Leslie Newbigin. Mm. So like as soon as I'm done with Duke, I show up at like the Duke of England, right? right? right. <laughs> like, everything that Duke wants to be and is insecure about, like Cambridge <laughs> is it. Yeah. It's like the biggest phallic place <laughs> in the world, you know? It's like ground zero of like colonial academia. Right. You know? Wow. And so um, I was there giving this. And then of course I'm invited to like talk about Leslie Newbegin, who's this like 
colonial missiologists mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> who a lot of people from the Fuller world or the Westmont world would kind of see him as like an anti right. Like, but he's one of the good guys. Right. And it's like, like progressive. It's all relative. It's yeah. all relative. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> He's still a problematic white guy. Yeah, yeah. Who was doing problematic work, <laughs> and I'm here to call it out. Yeah, this is what I do. And so I was there speaking, and um, the head of the institute who invited me to come speak got so mad at me that he like physically threw his hands up in the air and like was like during my talk. Wow. And then wow. the first question out of the gate was. Um, not even a question. It was, I can't tell if you're sloppy or mischievous. Jeez. From that director person, you know? And so. Well, probably pretty mischievous, but in a really good way. (laughs) Well, that just to me brought up like so much of the work I'm doing around God as a black woman, Mm. because he said, I can't tell if you're sloppy or mischievous. Like here I am a black woman systematically taking down this white male idol. Right. And he says, I can't tell, off the tip of his tongue's locked and loaded, it's, I can't tell if you're sloppy. Sloppy is a euphemism for black. Mm. Dirty, lazy, sloppy. That's, that's what black people are in our collective consciousness. White, in our white collective con- And then, or mischievous, that's woman. Yeah. I can't tell if you're untrustworthy, if you're a snake, if you're up to no good. If you're easily deceived, yeah, you and you were bringing up the 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 negative overtones of the phys- figure of Jezebel in our last mm-hmm. uh, interview. Yeah, and it's the Are same. Are you a Jezebel? Like, totally. Yeah. And he he's like, I can't tell if you're black or female. Yeah, jeez. And that's why I'm like, we have to talk about the divine and black femininity because so quickly he saw me as dirty and untrustworthy. Mm. Because I was saying something that he didn't like mm. and saying it well. That, and so it's it says like, more about him than you at that moment, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. totally. I mean, and I think like there were a good number of people in the audience. There was a large auditorium that was mostly full. It was a public lecture and they were like, you could hear a gasp yeah. when he said that, you know, just like. And he was a professor. All, a lot of people in the audience appreciate. Yeah, he was the professor. Okay. And um, a lot of people in the audience appreciated my critiques of what I bet. I bet. He's problematic. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, th- that's what the thing is that we're realizing. <laughs> we're both have notifications. That's my, yeah. Uh, it's, I've, I've been saying a lot of this lately, just in, in these last few years of saying, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Like, that like so much of our missions efforts are rooted in colonialism. And it's like, oh, you know, I remember seeing... Uh, in some some contexts, I watched that movie End of the Spear recently, and the whole thing is like these people like we have to go tell these people and convert them and tell them our religion, and it's like I can I can I can remember what it would have felt like back then to think of that as a virtuous thing, but you know then then to hear other people's perspectives and think we were fine with our religion and our traditions, we didn't need yours, we didn't ask for it, you know it's like oh it's and that's kind of like the white sprawl mentality that you're talking about, like we deserve to be in every space, we have the answers and the solutions, we're not learners mm-hmm. uh, and I think that's what a word you use often is dismantling like it's not just like a little critique here, but that Leslie Newbegin and this whole system, Cambridge Duke just needs to 
somehow be dismantled if possible. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think that the, the, the urge to redeem everything is a white urge, Mm. white Mm. colonial urge to not be able to just say, actually, this is irredeemable. Like this whole construct that we've created is actually irredeemable. It's always like, oh, like reconciliation, <laughs> healing. Meanwhile, all the people of color and other marginalized groups are like, burn it down, you know? <laughs> because and so it's, I think it's very, it goes into that white sprawl, that like ontological expansiveness. Because what it is is it's not admitting limits. Yeah, and it's an inability to say actually we can't fix this mess we've created. Oh. We can't. Our expertise, all our master's degrees, all all of our so-called experience. It doesn't matter how supposedly good our hearts are. Like this is we can't conquer it. Mm. We can't conquer our own um our own evil, or we can't conquer our own. Pro- problematic constructs or oh, yeah yeah this this we can't conquer this crazy system that we somehow created and are indulging in and benefiting in and participating in yep and it's and that and that is like it is so hard for anyone who's been shaped by whiteness mm-hmm. to name limitations mm. because it just turns into shame yeah because whiteness the construct of whiteness is all about perfectionism you're only valuable if you can perform it's so transactional it's so um it doesn't let people be human it's so dehumanizing mm-hmm. right you have to always be strong you have to always be right you have to always be um prepared you can't ever just say i can't do this oh. that's you know, shameful in white culture i, I think that's this uh what I've, what I've learned about myself, even though I'd have thought, Oh, I'm just like progressive liberal Christian, uh, that, that there is this deep sense of, or experience of white fragility that I've, I thought I, I thought I was above, but, um, even recently I remember coming back home with, with three of my friends in the car who were queer and talking about, um, how gay pride or the pride parade is, is, very flawed and we live on Queen Anne which is a you know fairly middle class wealthy white neighborhood and they're like oh just these white liberals who just put a sign in their front yard and they think they've done their work and it was just like a very critical stance mm-hmm. and i very much associate myself with this neighborhood and i just mm-hmm. got so defensive mm-hmm. and so angry i i almost couldn't sleep that night and i was just like what just happened to me like why am I? well it was that and i have this book white fragility mm-hmm. <laughs> but um I, I liked to think that in aligning myself with a quote unquote progressive culture, I was beyond critique or I had somehow mm-hmm. um, disassociated with judgmental, problematic Christians. And I couldn't, mm-hmm. I couldn't tolerate critique. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I wanted to be beyond reproach, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so it's such a prison. Yeah, it really is. Like, not be able to say, I don't get it. Mm-hmm. I'm on a journey. Mm-hmm. I get to be on a journey too. Mm-hmm. Like that's what a saying I've, I'm, I haven't arrived. It, it gives me permission to be on a journey. Yeah. But you know, I mean, I'm black and I'm female, but I was shaped by whiteness because yeah. I went to all these ridiculous schools and I, I grew up with a big one foot in the white evangelical church. And so 
I have those, those same urges in me sometimes where I'm like, wait, why does everyone else get to be on a journey? But me, mm, yeah. <laughs> why, why do I have to have it, make it look like I've thought through everything. You're a professor. You have your PhD. You've, you figured yeah. it out. <laughs> and also like, even in the justice circles, you want to like, it's, you know, part of it's just genuine. I want to be authentic and have aligned my values aligned with my life, you know, but also it can turn into very easily for me. I don't want anyone to be able to critique me and say, oh, but in this one way, you're being oppressive. Mm. Oh, right. Yeah. Not me. (laughs) That's just the white male God. That's just the white sprawl remnants in me because like, it's one thing to desire authenticity. It's another thing to not give yourself permission to be human and recognize that no human is going to in every way have this like perfectly aligned Mm. or like I can somehow not participate in these systems like capitalism and things like that, where it's like, no, like I am, I am a capitalist because I have a debit card. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like like you don't have to be like, you know, Jeff Bezos. Right. Right. Yeah. We're all participating and benefiting. I'm participating in the system. I have a bank account. I have a credit card. I have a debit card. Yeah. You have a house. I know that's one of the things there's so many things to learn, but that's one of the things I think I've learned recently too, is this idea of being able to protect my image is a, is a privileged thing. And so trying to have these types of conversations, which actually at the end of the day are zero risk, but there is something about like a fear of, I'm going to say something wrong or sloppy or embarrassing. That's going to make me look bad. And so then I just don't have the conversations. What I've been trying to do is allow myself to have the conversation. And if I say something in a, offensive or wrong, I apologize. And But just this idea of like, I'm going to protect my persona, my ego by just not engaging in the conversation because it's too risky. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a privileged place. But something you were saying just a second ago reminded me of another thing you shared on your Patreon about your own privilege and how you were taught to have these sort of debates and I, there, there was something, there was a yeah, name for it. Do you cool. remember? The you Harkness mean? table. Yeah, the Harkness table. I mean, that's a that's a culture I know nothing about. But yeah, what but do you I feel like that did to you? Men, but I feel like most white men are just trained to be at the Harkness table. Yeah, true. Being, you know what I mean? But yeah, I think um, I went to a boarding school that is, like, most people consider it to be like the number one high school in America. Um, it's super old, founded in 1781. Mm. and. Hmm. The number of famous people who went there, it's ridiculous. Interesting. Um, yeah. And so I was a scholarship kid, you know, the school, I, I think the tuition now is about 70,000 a year. Wow. Um, <laughs> I think when I was there, it was like more like 50, you know, but I, I went for, I think my parents maybe paid 2000. Um, the endow- the school's endowment is um, I think only the Ivy league schools and like, Vanderbilt and Amherst have more money than the school. Interesting. So out of all the colleges. Yeah. So the vast majority of colleges don't even have as much money as this high mm. school and their endowment. The endowment is like billions of dollars. And That's so um, if you get in, if you get in, they will make it possible for your family to go, mm. For, mm. you know, for you to go because there's tons of money for scholarships and most kids don't need scholarships. You go right, there. right, right, right. <laughs> And so I was there. And so I'm being shaped by like the whitest, most elite wow. academic space in America. Um, and one of the things they taught us was 
basically how to run corporate America. Like all the mm. classes were, um, you only had like 10 people in the class. There were no lectures. You just sat around, they called it the Harkness table, but it was a boardroom table where mm. everyone had a seat. And your goal was to dominate that space. Um, that's what it meant to excel. Um, that's what it meant to be a learner was to dominate that space. And um, dominating it meant never showing weakness, never showing that you didn't have all the answers, never showing that you had something to learn. Um, definitely not changing your opinion once you have put it out there. You know, it's like, well, I think Dante's saying this. Well, you better fight to the death that to, con to, to convince and persuade everyone at the table to agree with you, even if someone on the opposite side of the table is sharing something that would be life-giving to you, mm. <laughs> would help you, mm. you know? And it was like that for every single class, physics, um, Spanish class, you know? And so, you know, I, that was a way of practicing whiteness, but you see that same thing just in white culture. So I was kind of like introduced to that because of my access to elite Right. To elite white culture. But I mean, you see that in the way white families um, are around a dinner table. Like there's no real discussion and no space for authenticity and disagreement. And it's all about like looking like you have it together and having being comfortable, not not causing any discord. Yeah. Yeah. Or <laughs> getting so into a really like de like well-informed debate. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yeah. All you can't be, you have to be rational. It's right. always all about being quote rational end quote. It's, it's not about um, lived experiences and, or just saying, I just don't know. I, mm. I don't know what I think about that. I'd like, tell me more, you know? So um, I've learned that, I mean, that's, that's what's so interesting to me about whiteness in anti-blackness is that we all have choices in whether we participate them or in them or not. It's, right. It doesn't just boil down to what's your skin color. It boils down to what are your practices and how they've been shaped and how do you move through this world? And I think um, people who are white, who've had lots more time in white culture have different things to struggle with. Um, but there are also people like me who, even though I'm black and I have lots of um, touch points with black culture, I've been shaped a lot, especially in academia and, mm. and in the church by whiteness. And so it's like, well, why was it growing up that I thought Jesus was white? You know, like that's whiteness. That is, it didn't, <laughs> you didn't have, nobody was questioning it or making somebody no prove it. Me. Yeah. And you walk into a lot of black churches and you see a white Jesus yeah. too, you know? Right. So, I mean, I didn't go to a lot of black, predominantly black churches when I was growing up, we went to like assemblies of God churches that were white and, you know, or other evangelical churches. So, you know, but I, you know, you can walk into lots of black churches and see a white Jesus. Mm. Um, and so whiteness goes beyond just white people and white spaces. Yes. There's this sort of a meme of a white male intellectual that I feel like is sort of, uh, represented by somebody like Ben Shapiro. Do you know that guy, Ben Shapiro? Mm -hmm. and, and there's other people like like Sam Harris. But it's sort of this sort of a deadpan affect. It's like logical at all costs. And they go around in a crowd. Yeah, there's yeah. A, somebody posted a video the other day of somebody like Ben Shapiro, who's a white man about my age, going around a woman's march with his microphone. And the whole thing obviously is 
ridiculous from the beginning because um, this, you know, this guy is going to edit it up in the way he wants it to make yeah. these women look crazy. Mm-hmm. And he's going around and asking, uh, what is their definition of a woman? Mm-hmm. And, and then, and then, so he catches some of these women flat footed. They're trying to think like, wow, what an interesting question. That's that, that, that question has a lot of depth and nuance to it. How, how can I just casually on the street with a person I've never met who's sticking this microphone in my face offer like a, a quick, great solution. And, but some of I thought that, oh, many of their answers were really interesting. Uh, but yeah. I think because he wasn't getting this nice, clean, crisp definition in one sentence, you know, the way he edits the video, it makes it seem like these people just don't know what they're talking about. And yeah. he's sort of the intellectual who's not getting emotional and who's above, you know, getting yeah. down into this, into the nuances of this discussion, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I honestly just see so much of myself in that from my early days and still now. Um, and it's, it's a little bit embarrassing, but also I think what you're highlighting is it's very, um, and, and you see it, you see it as people grow up, uh, in this culture. Um, what would I call it? What's the best word for it? Oppressive isn't the word I'm wanting, but, um, stressful maybe to always walk around needing to have the answers and not have any sort of humility or curiosity or ability to name that you were wrong. It's really defensive. It's yeah. a defensive way of living through life. And then you can't take risks when mm-hmm. you're defensive. You can't be creative when you're defensive. You can't connect mm-hmm. with people mm-hmm. when you're defensive. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's bad for everyone, you know, but then uh, it's especially bad for, I mean, cause so many of the people who are shaped this way have power. So then when someone like me says to my, you know, provost at Westmont, here are my concerns about being a black person in this space, that defensiveness that maybe limits their ability to move in the world just comes back at me like a hammer. Mm, and then yeah. it's not just defensive, then it's like you're oppressively violent. Like the your inability to handle ambiguity, your inability to handle discomfort and critique is literally turned into a weapon and it's not that's why it's so important for me to like as someone who walks with some power in this world um due to like upward mobility and formal education and some of these things it's like so important for me to get comfortable like develop these spiritual practices that help me be comfortable with just sitting with it yeah yeah you know because I could easily on social media in a talk, I facilitate retreats and other spaces, classroom spaces. There's so many ways in which my response can just crush mm. because of the, the power that I carry. Mm. Um, and it's like, you know, you see clergy who need to do this. I mean, there's so many people who need to do this. Yeah. I need to run. Okay. 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 <laughs> Good job cutting us off. Uh, man, it's there's so much to talk about. Always. Um, I'm so grateful uh, that you did this. Um, <laughs> gosh, maybe we can do it again in a year. <laughs> maybe, yeah. My book's coming out this time next year, so we'll see. <laughs> oh, is that one? Is it going to be a year? Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, God is a black woman. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, it's not due to my editors till this summer, and so I'm, I'm writing it right now. Ah. Uh. Um, yeah, man, if you're, if you're able to have another interview in a year, maybe we'll just make it a yearly tradition (laughs) if you're up for it. (laughs) 
I really appreciate you making the time. I'm I'm learning so much from you, and I know others are too. And I'm so grateful for you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Well, definitely let us know when you put put this out there, and we'll share it too. On Monday, I'll I'll let you know. That's really quickly. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Talk to okay. you later. Bye. Bye. <laughs>